You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Towner, Patrick, and hi, I'm Howard Schweitzer. What's your name, sir? <laughs> That's it right there on the screen, M. Oh, Alderman at Cozen.com. Alderman. <laughs> Alderman. Uh, we are back. Mark, it's been, you've had a hiatus. Summer ended two days ago, and here I am. There okay. you go. <laughs> Patrick is in Florida with his yellow pants on. Yes. And Caitlin is on assignment somewhere on the eastern seaboard. I'm not exactly sure where. But guys, I a ton going on. We're back. Towner, you and I were hoofing it around Capitol Hill this week. You more than me, I must admit. You've been up there a ton. What's the mood? What are you hearing? What What are people talking about on the Hill? Let's, let's start there. The lines are back. I can tell you that. They uh, are back. My goodness. Crazy. Uh, I feel like everybody from a client perspective has just had pent up energy to want to get to D.C., and September offered the last really good chance this year because they're, you know, in sporadic, they're out for, for the traditional, you know, we didn't have it last cycle, but the traditional October recess, they're back in the middle of November, but a uh, new member orientation will be going on because it's right after uh, election day and it's, a, it's otherwise very busy. Then Thanksgiving, then we have that sort of three week sprint in December uh, that really constitutes the lame duck to get some of those big packages done. And so this was the last opportunity. If you haven't been in D.C. since March of 2020, I feel like everybody came and uh, yeah. it was good. It was good to do the in-person meetings. They are so much more productive than the virtual meetings. Uh, you know, just nobody's doing emails uh, in the middle of your meeting very often. And uh, and action items are actually happening out of those meetings. So they're, they're productive and it's nice to do it again. It is uh, putting like, uh, you know, Disney World uh, sized uh, step counts back on our loafers again. But, yeah, there um, is. I mean. Obviously, we're still doing a lot virtually, but it is it is good to be back in person. And there is a ton of energy. Uh, restaurants are packed. Yeah, restaurants on, around DC are, are they're packed. Like it's it's uh, it feels it feels very normal. Patrick, you're down at the DSCC retreat, right? What's yes. the mood down there? Uh. You know, I think people are enjoying uh, getting together in person, which is good. To Towner's point, I mean, the, that switch is definitely flipped. Occasionally, though, I'll still get kind of like a one-off uh, from an office saying, hey, can we meet virtually? And it's like when it's like when someone asks you to print something off and you're kind of like, no, we're not. I, I don't want to do that. We, we, we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, so that can be it, but it is interesting. Like some offices, I think still, you know, whether they haven't updated their policy or whatever, but you know, I think everyone I've talked to so far is like thrilled to be in person. Um, it's, it's one of the first retreats, I think at the federal level where things are really starting to feel whatever normal is kind of back to normal. And whether it's, uh, 
you know, kind of silly optimism or a real feeling. I think people, uh, when it comes to some particular races that are of interest on the Democratic side, I think people are feeling somewhat optimistic. Others are feeling maybe a little more pessimistic. So there will be a lot of good dinner table debate tonight, I think, at the receptions about the state of uh, the Senate map. You know, I, I spent, Howard, as you know, a long day in D.C. yesterday, and, and I have a couple of observations that are sort of the same, but but one is most definitely different. The What's the same is the back to normal part, especially no masks yeah. uh, anywhere. I don't know that you could even buy a mask in Washington, let alone find anybody wearing one. and that was a visual confirmation that everybody is is back the the little different report though is that contrary to the president on 60 minutes declaring the pandemic over it's not i had as as you know howard i had uh, two meetings i was really looking forward to yesterday both of them canceled because both of these guys separate trips came back from Europe and tested positive for COVID. So it, yes, we're back, but you got to drop a footnote that it that it's not entirely pre-COVID. Yeah, one comment on that, Mark, just interesting though too, because I've had that happen a couple of times. We've had clients that like their spouses have gotten it and they, you know, they, yeah. they stay home and it, it's yeah. still, it is still disruptive to what right. we're all doing in a way that that I think is irritating. But I can't remember the last time someone told me they had COVID where I really felt worried, you know, the way that we all right. did right months ago. And I think that that part's different, right? I don't, yeah. I don't have this, like, it doesn't sound like someone's telling you they have a, a terminal illness or something horrible the way it right. did in those early months when we just yeah. didn't know anything and pre-vaccination and all that. So that that at least is a little bit of a positive. COVID's never going to be over. Right. The quest, but but the pandemic, the pandemic can be over without COVID being over. That's a great way to say it. And, totally, totally. Yeah. And I think I think that Biden was actually right. He just forgot that last. But but Patrick, to your point about optimism, in, in the last 24 hours, I had the opportunity to spend time with two Republican and two Democratic members of Congress, and everybody thinks they're going to win. Both sides think they're going to win. It's I've been doing this a long time, and the one thing I am very certain of is that both sides are not going to win. One side's well, going to win, what? the other's going to lose. <laughs> When what? I mean, do the election? Do well. What does that mean? I mean, Democrats the, believe they're going to keep control of Congress, and Republicans believe they're going to take control of Congress. Yeah, and I I think that you know and where, where I what I wonder right. the one the one result I don't know anyone that thinks is going to happen is that Democrats maintain a majority in both right. houses. I, I haven't talked right. to anyone who says that with a straight face. What I think people are curious about. Right at least I certainly am, is, is it a 2014 election where there was no good news for Democrats uh, the day after the election in 2014? It was a knockout. Gene Shaheen and Mark Warner. Yeah, I guess there you go. They, they survived yeah. uh, barely. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah. it was just a really bad, and, and those races, the, we weren't even really thinking about Warner's race being close. No, they, that, they, that, was, right. Right. that was scary just in and of itself. So is it a 
everything is bad kind of night or is it a split decision or is it a kind of overall bad, but there's some good news to take out of it. And there, I think you look to, you know, the Republicans in 2018 picked up a couple Senate seats while losing 40 seats in the House. And it gave them something to talk about, uh, you know, the day after the election in 2010. It was, as President Obama then said, a shellacking. But by the grace of God and some horrible Republican candidates, Democrats held their Senate majority, which could have been in question had the Republicans not nominated Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, Ken Buck in, uh, in Colorado. And who's the third one, Tanner? I'm thinking of Indiana. Sharon. Yeah. So that those races uh, or those election cycles are a little, you know, more of a question in terms of kind of what's the narrative coming out of it. The question is whether the Republicans can overperform their candidates. Yeah. Because well, they have some bad candidates yeah. on the Senate side. Yeah, Mark. I mean, when I said, what does that even mean? I meant that on the House side, the Republicans are taking the House. I agree. Not every Democrat is willing to say that. Of course, but Chuck Schumer is. So let's 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 go with let's go with Chuck. Let's go with the question in the House, as Patrick was just saying, is is McCarthy going to get enough of a majority that he can work with the knuckleheads in Towner's caucus? Right. I mean, you know, the bottom line here from a House perspective is that Republicans picked up more deep red seats in redistricting than is needed to win back the House. And so they start from a position of now being in the majority going into Election Day because even if it's a 50-50, Democrats have to overperform the generic so high to swing Republican districts to the blue category to have a chance of keeping the House. And so that's, you know, in the House, it's just a numbers game to begin with if you're determining where the majority is going to fall. more. I have a Professor French math question. What do you feel like today, and I'm sure this will change, but like, what do you feel like is if you pick a number on seat pickups, what is good night narrative minimum and what is bad night narrative? Like what, what do you, if you had to generalize it in two numbers, what would you say? If you're thinking inside of the Republican party right now, so there's the giddiness, the enthusiasm, Republicans are going to see anything less than a 20 seat pickup as a negative. As an underperformance. Yeah. They're going to see anything North of 30 to 35 seats as like an awesome night. Um, You know, and so I think I still think my personal viewpoint is that we're somewhere in the 18 to 25 seat pickup for Republicans. Um, And keep in mind, half of those are just newly redistricted districts. So there's not a place where a Democrat lost. It's just where a new Republican district was was formed. Um, And and of course, with New York uh, having to redo their maps. Uh, they lost a couple of Democratic seats in New York as a result of that redraw. They lost. Connor, the- you're talking like North Carolina first, right? Like GK yeah. Butterfield looked at the new district, said, I'm not running in that. I'm out. I'm out. And that's yeah. going to flip, right? Like one like going to flip, but it's not really a flip. I mean, it was done right. because of redistricting, not because of candidates or national party, right. you know, right. uh, desirability or anything. In what, what aligns Towner, and I'm not going to quarrel with Professor French on Republican prognostication. I'll just tell you on the Democratic side, although in their heart of hearts, they all know they're losing control. Not everybody's there yet. But I think uh, 
I think Democrats think if McCarthy doesn't pick up more than 20 seats, he's going to have an unmanageable caucus. Yeah, that's that's the magic number uh, that we think he needs to govern. Yeah, and we can put finer points. I mean, yesterday was a prime example of how Nancy Pelosi needs a minimum of a six-seat majority to overcome four to five squad votes. She almost yeah. lost a rule yesterday. She had to have Ayanna Presley vote vote present just so she could win on a rule bill, which is a, a big no-no when you're in the majority that you lose a rule vote. For Pelosi, that number is six right now. She needs a majority of six or higher to overcome uh, five squad members who are willing to vote against her. On the Republican side, McCarthy needs those 20 seats. You're exactly right, Mark. And I would argue that it's higher than 20 uh, because there's a lot of folks who are just, you know, just voting at this point due to primary challenge. Uh, You know, he's going to have about a six month grace period before everybody's going to start looking at filing deadlines again uh, come yeah. December of 2023 and uh, and start thinking about the challenge from their right. So that number is actually going to grow for McCarthy over time, the the folks that aren't going to work with him. So they're going to try to get out of the gate fast. He, he already is rolling out his, or I guess as part of the election, rolling out his version of the contract with America. Yeah. Um, well, and I, and it's a, the bite size contract with America. Yeah. Well, it's not the Rick Scott. Uh, let's uh, encourage people to vote against us contract with America that uh, that he was putting out. But you know, each committee, by the way, from a from a lobbying perspective, each committee is also doing their oversight plans, doing their legislative plans right now on the Republican right. side about what happens when they get the gavel on January third. So, a lot of the meetings that we're doing over the course of September are actually setting up. Uh, action on client preferred legislation come January 3. Yeah. And as Patrick, of course, knows, we are very actively underway with that in our healthcare practice because the the agenda is actionable. Yeah. It, Listen, it, it, it's, it, it's all about the Senate. You know, I mean, wh- whatever is going to happen legislatively, like we'll see. But there's going to be divided, at least there's going to be, well, there's guaranteed to be divided government. Well, the president's not up. Right. right. So guaranteed, assuming the Republicans take the House, which they will, for there to be divided government. The question is, who controls nomination? Who controls confirmations? And yep. Yep. It, it is, it's all about the Senate. And and who controls the Senate? And it's it's tight. And that's where everybody that's where there are lots of different points of view and huge unknowns and races that people haven't even been thinking about, like Colorado. Things are really topsy turvy when it comes to the Senate races. What one additional thing I do think comes into play, though, if Democrats maintain the Senate, you know, when it's a unified congressional uh, majority, let's say unified, in this case, unified congressional Republican majority versus the president of the opposite party. It's a little easier to pit yourself against Congress as a whole. Uh, you know, we saw that in the 90s with what President Clinton was able to do with Gingrich and the Republican majority. It gets a little trickier. And we saw this under Obama when Democrats had control of the Senate. And McConnell was very savvy in how he worked to kind of create discontent, knowing President Obama was running for re-election. 
needed to look like he was capable of governing uh, a Congress that had a majority, uh, you know, a different majority in each body. And that's how we ended up with sequestration. And we ran into a whole host of challenges trying to just do things as simple as funding the government and raising the debt ceiling. And so that I do think will be of great concern uh, to the Biden administration. If them, they, they would they would obviously rather hold the Senate. They want to continue to confirm judges, confirm appointees. But it will make the political messaging going into 2024, assuming the president runs again, more challenging, uh, you know, that, that you can't just say Republicans run Congress, you know. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd still rather have the United States Senate under no, no question about it. Of course. Yeah. But it's not penalty free is your point. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. it's not yeah. just exactly there. There are there are real problems. And you talk to Democrats yeah. who lived through all of us lived through uh, doing what we're doing now, how everything went in uh, 2011. I mean, Republicans won. They 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 were very smart. Uh, to handle those neg- negotiations the way they did. And I just, you know, we'll have to see if Democrats learn any lessons from that. Yeah. I mean, we're in an era of chaos right now. You take what you can get when you can get it. Uh, we saw that two years ago when Pelosi took back the House and McConnell and Donald Trump did as many judges as they humanly possibly could do. And we're going to see Biden and Schumer do that probably if Democrats are able to hang on to the Senate, which I think they will. And Republicans flip the House over the course of the next two years. But after that, if you look to 2024, you got 33 senators up, 23 of those are Democrats. And a lot of them are in purple states. The mansions of the world, cinemas, you name it, are all up. I don't see a scenario at this point, I mean, it's way early, where where Republicans don't take the Senate in 2024, quite frankly. It depends uh, what happens oh, at the top of the ticket. 20, yeah, yeah, 2024 is a couple hundred years from now. I, yeah. I I just want to observe that, and I say this with tremendous affection and admiration, but you got to be lying awake at night to be thinking about 2024. You know, it's like you have 10 Republicans up and 23 Democrats. There's a never, I don't know, a single cycle where there's been an imbalance that large. I think about 2024 because I think about what? What ha- what's the margin in the Senate and does it matter for this this year? Not 2024. I'm still yes. in. I'm in 2022. After 2024. Got back. Uh, it's still 2022. Right. <laughs> and no, next. I, don't, I wasn't gone two years. Yeah. I don't. Well, the, the, I, I think it's 51, 49 Democrats. That's what I, I think. And Democrats does and, and does that matter? Is that of course different? it matters. Huge. Because because well, Joe Manchin is the. President of the United States right now. Right. Yeah. Right. I think right. Democrats pick up a seat. And, that one uh, seat is that one seat is second best to have in the president. And the incumbents run the table. Is that your math? Is that no. your? I un- unfortunately, because I really like her, I think Cortez Masto loses ultimately in Nevada. So and then we pick two seats up. Pick two seats up, I, and I'm not sure. It's Pennsylvania, and it's either Wisconsin, Wisconsin. or Georgia. I haven't figured it out yet. Which one? What's the other one? How do we pick up Georgia? We have both Georgia. seats. Or uh, no, hold Georgia. I'm sorry, you hold Georgia. North, Carol- North Carolina would be the other. Yeah, but then yeah. where to? How do you get to 51? Where's the? Or, uh, well, no, I guess I'm sorry. You only need to. Yeah. But if Cortez Masto loses, you need to pick up two seats. You need to pick up a second seat, and there's um, I, I there's, we're gonna there's pick options. up. We're going to pick up Ohio. Pennsylvania. Good Ohio. Yeah. I, 
we could pick up two seats. By the way, we could also lose four seats. It, it is yeah. volatile and close. We, as Howard was saying before, we, we, the Democrats, are benefiting from the quality of our opponents in some of these races, yeah. Pennsylvania being one of them. Mark, what's your feeling about Democratic support for the MAGA candidates around the country in Republican primaries? Yeah, I am not a fan of that strategy. It sort of didn't even work this time. A lot of money got spent in a lot of races and we didn't even get the guy we were looking for. You know, it famously worked for Claire McCaskill and we keep trying it ever since. But I, I am... I am not a big fan of that on on policy and practical grounds, both. Yeah, I agree completely. And the Claire McCaskill example also happened in a pre-Donald Trump world. Right. And I would hope that people living in a post-Donald Trump world, as I think we all are, or a, a semi-current Donald Trump world, given that he's still relevant, uh, it, it, is, it is a terrible idea. Uh, yep. I'll just leave it at that. Republicans are yeah. fired up. They're fired up in a because they're mad, you know, because all of that is happening at the same time that the president obviously uh, came out and said that MAGA Trump Republicans represent a, essentially a clear and present threat to our democracy. And yet they're Schumer's pack. Others are pumping money in. Uh, they just they just swung the New Hampshire right. You could argue they swung the New Hampshire Trumper to win that primary. And and quite frankly, Maggie Hassan has a very good chance of holding that seat in New Hampshire uh, because because the, the Trumper won the primary. Got a better chance against uh, him than she would have against the yeah. uh, the second place guy. But I, I think she'll be all right. But then, you know, all right. But we did look, Josh Shapiro or everybody knows the Pennsylvania governor's race. And Josh put money into Mastriano's race. Yep, absolutely. For sure that unnecessary. I wouldn't wouldn't have done it if if I'd been in charge. But well, so the question, though, is how many of those Trumpers actually win on Election Day? Well, that's, that's what I was just about to say. Among the other reasons not to do it is the be careful what you wish for phenomenon. I was having this conversation with a uh, former Republican member an hour or two ago. In fact, you know, in 2016, I kept wishing for Donald Trump. Please, please give us this guy. Please, we, we don't want to have to run against Jeb Bush or even Marco Rubio. Give us this guy. Well, there, there's some PTSD going on from that. Yeah. that Agreed. In a in a two-party system, you just can't afford to have one of the two options be dangerous. You just can't. It's irresponsible right. of anyone right. to do anything that would present you with not at minimum two, you know, whether it's reasonable or whatever. But yeah, it's yeah. just that that is the the lesson of 2016 that at least I learned, which is you want to go into an election. I think voters should want this too. You want to go to the ballot box and think to yourself, you know, if the candidate I vote for loses, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. I mean, Towner, the the biggest uh, advantage that Maggie Hassan has in New Hampshire is that the governor chose not to run. That's exactly yeah. right. It's a new and 
it, yeah. it feels to me, I mean, how does a Marjorie Taylor Green get, how does a Marjorie Taylor Green get elected to the United States Congress? We have a problem yeah. if, if a nut job like that, and I'm, yes, I'm saying it publicly gets, gets elected to the United States Congress. It's is that how, controversial. No, it's not controversial, but you know, yeah, um, it's not controversial among the people on this podcast. It's crazy to me. And I think there's a whole problem we have in this country in terms of people that want to seek public office in the first place, candidate pools, who chooses to run what you're exposed to. If you decide to run, uh, what it means to enter public life these days. It is, there's like a root cause here where people, like we just need to go back to incentivizing. We need to find a way to incentivize good people to go into public service. Because yeah, it feels like we've left come with a bunch of crap. Since, Sorry, we've come God. a long way since President Kennedy's, you know, ask not what your country can do for you. It, that feels very hollow now when you look at the, the quality of candidates, to your point, Howard. Yeah, I mean, look, I... I've seen it in terms from the executive branch point of view in terms of clearing people in to 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 serve. It's like your life gets turned upside down. You know, your your life gets turned upside down, your life gets scrutinized from top to bottom. You know, you have to have lived your life like a in a, almost in isolation, not to trip over some of the hurdles they put up um, and, and those are appointments. They're not even elected office. It's the barriers to entry are, are just well, so high. It disincentivizes good people who aren't perfect from, from seeking office. Couldn't agree more. We're, we're dumbing down and distorting the candidate pool. And in addition to all that you mentioned, if you're running rather than getting appointed, the need to spend more time raising money than everything else you do as a candidate right. is, is a tremendous disservice to this country and disincentive to good people running. Yeah, I agree with that. And Howard, to your point, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so like, it's all, it's two parts of it too. Like, the really screwed up things about politics are drawing in all the wrong people. And they're also simultaneously pushing away all of the types of people you would want to see run. It's like, it's kind of a, there's a, you know, an effect both ways there, right? It's just um, the media attention, how politics has become 24 seven, even beyond cable that's drawing in just a narcissistic generation of people who are running and then to Mark's point, the fundraising and then the demands on family, you know, trying to do good, but putting yourself out uh, for something that doesn't feel to be honorable to a great number of people anymore to, to frankly just do something else. And that's that's really problematic. Yeah, but we do this to ourselves. I mean, we like to see the chaos. Regularly, we like to see, we like to see it on TV. We love hey, reality. Who is, who is we? we like is the <laughs> I said we is the American who, who public. Is we? 
Oh, the okay. American public likes get to out the popcorn all the time. I thought you meant Cozen O'Connor public strategies. Best thing that ever happened to MSNBC was Donald Trump in January 6th, quite frankly. I mean, like they they've made yeah, an well, industry. Well, no, best thing that ever happened to MSNBC was 2000 and yeah. Florida. With, that love that love everybody created. Loved yeah. And so, you know, the, the bottom line also is that in the House, candidates don't matter. They never have. The generic ballot matters. Wave elections matter. Redistricting matters. But once you yeah. factor in all the president matters, yeah. president matter. Yeah. Senate yeah. candidates, you know, set an up ballot uh, election know, matters. And the Senate candidates still matter. In the House, they don't. And, you know, Howard, to your point, so somebody said something interesting to me this because having breakfast with a client of ours who is thinking seriously about running for something. And he was saying to me, I'm prepared to come clean on my college activities and more. That isn't what worries me, he said. What worries me is the lies. I'm okay with the truth. They can throw whatever truth at me there is, and I'll I'll confess to it. But but I don't know if I want to put myself out there to be lied about. Right. That that didn't. I don't. I don't think that used to be as much of a problem. I guess the election of eighteen hundred Towner. There's a lot of lying going. Lots on. of lying going yeah, on. Lots of lying know, going yellow on. journalism. But then Mark. it got better for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of getting better, my Giants are two and zero. Oh. I Mark. think there's. A, there's another team on this screen that's two and zero, right? Your Eagles are two and zero. Patrick, your your Bears are one and one. On on one hand, Howard, our quarterback was vilified for going out Friday night before the biggest game of the year on Sunday Night Football. But on the other hand, he was at uh, Tau. Uh, owned by our client Madison Square Garden, which is a fine establishment. It's a great place. So <laughs> you can't fault a guy for for that. <laughs> no, right. Towner, totally your team, the Commanders or whatever they are now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You I know, know. the interesting thing is like this is the game coming up this weekend that they win. The Eagles are flying high at two and oh, the commanders, you know, stunk up the joint last weekend. And now out of nowhere, Washington's actually going to win a game. It's going to get this entire town really excited about football. And then they're going to lose like six in a row. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping I, you're wrong both <laughs> because I'm an Eagles fan. And because I can't deal with you and Jim Davis, if that happens. No, I, but I want to be perfectly clear. Jim Davis is a totally different story. I have not been a cheerleader of the commanders uh, probably uh, a decade and a half. <laughs> I don't I allow the most myself significant to football story of the weekend is that after playing the three worst teams in college football, Michigan has half a game this weekend. Half a game. Half a game. Yeah, but Maryland is not the fourth worst team in the country. You pick the three worst teams to open. Hey, and it's, and it's now you have half a team. Those are basically preseason games. Yeah. Is even what the, they are. Even the best restaurants have soft openings. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's smart. <laughs> By the way, uh there there's a team down in Texas that it didn't work out too well for. So right. Right. Notre um, Dame, too. Um and I heard and the I, Michigan game's gonna be flag, uh not tackle this weekend. Oh <laughs> interesting. But I give Maryland half a chance in that game, by the yeah. way. 
They have, yeah, we'll see. But of course, I know you'll all be glued to Aaron Judge's pursuit of what is effectively the all-time home run record in a season because Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and Barry Bonds cheated. They cheated, so. yeah. And no asterisks this time. The 61 never should have had an asterisk. and It shouldn't. No, Astrid. One baseball, since we are talking baseball, one shout out to our colleague, John Dunn, too. I saw the Cubs president, Craig Kenny, uh, on a golf course on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and as John, as a Cardinals fan, commented, it's it's never a good thing when your MLB president is playing golf in early September on a weekday. <laughs> that says a lot about the state of your baseball team. So uh, props to John for giving me uh, a good chuckle because it could. Yeah. Be. Well, I think. I'm the only one with a team legitimately in it. Go oh, Orioles! Phillies uh, are in the playoffs. Yeah. Orioles still. Orioles yeah. still have a chance. Everybody's in the playoffs. I guess that's true. Orioles aren't in, but they've been exci- more exciting than they have. They been. have. I forgot you were an Orioles fan, yeah. Tanner. I have to admit. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, fun as always, and we will be back next week. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will uh, have more next okay. week. Thanks. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.